0: Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with
1: Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all. Here in episode 123, I have one of my favorite returning guests, Dan Enright, to come on the program to talk a little bit about Israel, archaeology, and Eusebius's onomasticon. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, I want to encourage y'all to check out a Kickstarter campaign I have with a link in the show notes. It's for the new album that I'm putting out in the summertime called Dusk and Dawn. I want to get this professionally mixed and mastered, and that's going to take a little bit of money. I'm trying to raise $2,000, and I'm a little bit over halfway there, so please consider supporting that. If you feel led, click that link in the show notes. Also, I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with BDK, so please go go on over to our YouTube page, Omega Frequency Live, become a subscriber, and check out all of our weekly content. All right, without any further ado, let's get into episode 123. Hey, Dan.
2: Cheers. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Phil? Good, man. Thanks for coming by again. Thanks for having me. Always good to see you. Oh, Always good to do stuff like this with you. For
1: sure. For sure. Um,
2: I think it's number five. Is F- it? F- fifth,
1: fifth episode with Dan. But who's counting? No, <laughs> not me. <laughs> yeah, if, if y'all are listening you want to uh, check out Dan's testimony, go listen to the episode that he did on the Faithful Podcast with Stephanie Baker. You can hear his testimony there. Yeah. And we told a little bit of our story the last time you were over here. We did some of that stuff in terms of mm-hmm. like uh, uh, how we got to know each other and sure stuff at church.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I remember that well. Yeah. Yeah. So, but here today, we're going to be talking about the onomosticon. What's that? Is that a real thing? Surely that's not a real word. No, of course not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to talk about Israel, some sites there, some archaeology, and, um, man, I couldn't think of anybody better to do that with than you. You've led oh, some... Thanks. Yeah, man. You've led tours in Israel, hoping to do that again next year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, when did you first go to Israel, and what do you think was the most impactful moment
2: for you on that first trip? Wow. Um, well, our, our first trip was in 2010. And it was a, a really beautiful set of circumstances that, that led up to me being able to go. I was attending a Bible college um, at the time, and there was a donor who decided they wanted to offer a scholarship for a trip to Israel that one of the professors was leading. And it, it landed on me, so it actually came out of the blue. I wasn't planning this, had never thought about going, thought it was impossible um, because it, it does cost some money. And um, uh, I thought that at that point, I would probably never have the opportunity uh, to go. And it wasn't really on my radar. Uh, but one one night when I was in class, I was pulled out by a couple professors and I thought I was in trouble for something, because um, <laughs> they interrupted the class to to pull me out. And um, I thought, oh gosh, what's going on? Um, <clears throat> but anyway, they they uh, talked to me in in a classroom uh, privately and and told me that you know I was chosen to receive this uh, scholarship to um, to travel to Israel wow. with with this tour. And what's what's really Amazing about what God did initially is that I I went home that night I, I was so excited and I told my wife Jenny who's done a podcast with Steph yeah. of course um, I said I told her what happened and um, and I said and you're going with me <laughs> and at that point w- it was like how is that going to happen yeah but I knew that. I, I, Jenny had to experience this with me. We had to do this together. Yeah. But we we weren't even close to having the the funds. But I said God's gonna he's going to find a way hmm. uh, to make this happen. And so our, our tour was in May of 2010, and um and I was told uh, that the end of the prior year in in 2009, and it just so happened that our tax return came back. For 2019, in um, we did it early, I, I think that year, and it came back. And wait, uh, 2019 or 2009? Oh, I'm sorry, 2009. Yes, yeah. thanks yeah. for the correction. But um, the, our tax return came back, and it was almost to the penny <laughs> as far as the cost for for Jenny to go. And oh, that's so awesome. We were just like, "This is, I mean, yeah. God is in this." So we were able to um, go together in 2010. Um, the There were several most impactful moments uh, for us over there and for, for me personally. Um, the first site we, we visited was Caesarea uh, on the coast, Mediterranean coast. And that really impacted me to think that um, that was, the um the first place that scripture mentions the gentiles received the holy spirit it was in caesarea yeah and uh that was uh, a really powerful thought uh, moment when we were touring touring the site um i think another impactful moment there were several around the sea of galilee um but one that stuck out to me is, is kind of kind of weird. We, we were staying at a hotel on on the lake on the uh, west side over in Tiberias. and there was this uh, promenade that you could do- go walk along the lake. And there were, there were some shops down there at the time, and I just happened to to look over um, in this area. It's it's not it wasn't even highlighted. it, it wasn't easy to. See even, but I, I saw a plaque, a small plaque on a stone wall in this area where there were some trees and little some benches, but it wasn't any place that um, anyone was frequenting and and I walked over to see well hey, what's this plaque because i I'm inquisitive like that yeah and um, and what what was on the plaque was interesting because the Sea of Galilee is, is smaller than you would you would think. Yeah, it's, it's Everything is
1: smaller than you think when you're over yes.
2: there. Yes. I, I was really surprised at how small that lake is. And it's 13 miles in length and maybe 9 miles at its widest point. Yeah. And I kept thinking about the events that happened around and on that lake. And one thing that kept coming to mind was when Jesus calmed the storm. Mm. And I thought, wow, how can something like this get whipped up so intensely to where the the disciples were fearing for their lives yeah. on this lake? And, um, and it's, it's especially puzzling when you see it, yeah. right? You can kind of imagine it while you're reading the text. Yeah. But when you see it, you're thinking, man, how... How, how did that look? I mean, how is it possible that something like this, this small of a body of water could get churned up like that? But I went to, I went to read the plaque. Yeah. And it was a memorial uh, for, um, for some people in Tiberias who had lost their lives. And what had happened was during the British Mandate, uh, it was in the 30s, that this storm came down from the east over over the, the the mountain range on the east side of the uh, Sea of Galilee. And it, it was so intense, it basically caused the tidal wave to hit the town of Tiberias on the west side of the lake. Mm. And dozens of people lost their lives as a result of this tidal wave coming in and uh, slamming into Tiberias. Yeah. And at that moment, I started to put things together, and I'm like, wow, there's some real validity yeah. uh, to, to the account that we read about in the gospels. Mm. And then if you study the weather patterns too, there, there's, this, um, there's this wind that can come down from the east over the mountains and yeah. rush down onto the lake. And, and the lake is, um, it's about 700 feet below sea level.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's in a big, you know, rift that runs um, from Africa, um, it's it's a really long list but every rift but everything is under uh, below sea level in that in the Jordan Valley so anyway that was that was a, a point for me that was impactful because I I started thinking in a, in a new way about the Gospels yeah um, and and actually like picturing this now in, in a more real way yeah that what Jesus did must have, it, it blew the disciples away and we, we can see that in the text you know who is this mm. um, that even the wind and the waves obey him mm-hmm. but it really did something for my faith mm. in in that moment yeah and there there were plenty of, of uh, moments like that um, another really impactful point was when we um, we were, traveling to uh, Jerusalem mm. and so we had just um, we were coming from the Dead Sea after being in that area um, en Gedi, Masada yeah and then going into Jerusalem on highway one that runs east-west and the approach into Jerusalem from from that area um, basically takes you to Mount Scopus. so you're on the north, East Side um, and I remember coming out of a tunnel, we were coming out of a tunnel on the bus and um, and the first sight of Jerusalem the old city was it it brought basically the whole bus it brought him to tears mm. to see that city for the first time yeah uh, and especially from that that viewpoint from Mount Scopus, um, but but traveling on highway one coming out of this tunnel um, and just looking off to the left and, and seeing that city was um, it, it was uh, a, just an unbelievable yeah <laughs> experience to to actually see it yeah um, you read about it I think it's mentioned in the Bible like almost 800 times yeah and you just see it over and over in scripture, but then to really like actually be there, mm. see it. Mm. Um, that, was, that was really impactful. Um, and then another, uh, another uh, moment was th- that same night that we got to Jerusalem, we went to the Western Wall as they uh, brought in Shabbat. Yeah. And so Friday nights are just insane mm. at the Western Wall um you have so many people like ultra orthodox orthodox reform um the israeli defense force i mean just the the plaza is just packed yeah with people praying at the wall dancing crying singing um and and i managed to just make my way into the crowd mm. I, I wanted to really experience this and mm. that was uh, that was a very impactful moment for me as well uh, seeing the uh, the intensity mm. of prayer mm-hmm. with with the Jews mm. and um, w- with all these emotions that are on display yeah right you know sadness, joy yeah um, hope, Hope, yeah, all that—that mm-hmm. is—that was really a, um, an impactful moment for me. And then, of course, um, you know, we, we visited Yad Vashem, which is the uh, Holocaust Museum mm. in Jerusalem, and that is just uh, something that I, you know, I'll never forget. Yeah, uh, the first time. That that's the first time I had ever been to a Holocaust museum. Period. Mm. Um, but yeah, that was. I remember th- there w- you could have heard a pin drop on the bus on the way back mm-hmm. to our hotel after after um, being at uh, Yad Yad Vashem. Yeah. So yeah, there were there were several mm. moments that that were just so impactful for me on that on that first trip. But it, it varies. You never know when God is going to hit you with something, yeah. at, or at what what point on a right. tour. Um, but it never fails that that uh, it seems God uh, really just lays something on you that it just couldn't happen anywhere else, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So,
1: what are some of your favorite places to take people
2: when you're on a tour? Um, the the popular sites for sure because mm-hmm. there's so much to those sites right um, I really like to to kind of go off the beaten path sometimes if yeah. uh, like the two time we we've had a couple private tours with uh, some couples that that we know that mm-hmm. we've taken over there and that really allowed us to um, to, to go into these areas where normal tours don't go. Yeah. There's a, there's a convent in Nazareth uh, called the Sisters of Nazareth uh, convent. And they actually, they didn't know it at the time when they bought the property to build the convent, but underneath is a first century home mm. that they've discovered. And it's been featured on CNN. And yeah. there's, a, there's a big buzz about, hey, could this have been the home of Jesus? Um, yeah, it, it could have been. Um, do we know for sure no. Yeah. Right. But you can uh, arrange a tour with the sisters. Yeah. And and they'll take you down underneath the convent and give you a tour. Um, also, you know, hiking to the uh, hiking to Cave 1 yeah. where they discovered uh, Qumran. yes mm-hmm. in in Qumran where they discovered uh, the Isaiah scrolls, one, you know, half half a scroll. There were two Isaiah scrolls they discovered in that cave. One was half of the uh, book. And then they discovered the complete book of yeah. Isaiah as well. But we did that on our second tour. Um, and so that that's really a, a special thing to be able to hike up yeah. uh, to, to cave one. But uh, in the area of uh, Sea of Galilee, I, I love taking people to uh, Mount Arbel, okay. which is it's a huge cliff mm-hmm. um, that's at the northwest corner kind of of the Sea of Galilee, and it overlooks the Plain of Gennesaret, mm-hmm. and it's about a twelve hundred foot drop off of this thing, like straight down. Yeah. Uh, but what you can see from that vantage point. They they call it the gospel triangle, and if you were to make like put your arm, your hands out, you know, uh, yeah, uh, sure. stretch your arms out and make yeah. a triangle with your hands, it, it, you basically can frame the area on the north side of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus performed most of his miracles. Yeah, in um, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. Right, and it's it's a great vantage point. Um, to be able to talk about the way that Jesus positioned himself mm. in order um, that his message would would go out. Mm. Uh, it was strategic on Jesus' part to be <clears throat> in Capernaum.
0: Mm.
2: Um, there was a major, <clears throat> the VMRS ran right through it. Yeah, And and so what, um, what happened in Capernaum got reported in other areas. Yeah. And that's why in the Gospels you see people from all over right. were, were coming to see Jesus and to get healed. And it's because of how he positioned himself hmm. and to be able to see that. And, and think about also, you know, this, this tiny little remote area hmm. of all the places in the world. Yeah. Um, it was this tiny little remote area on the, shore, the north shores of the Sea of Galilee that, that Jesus did his most powerful signs and miracles And uh, it's it's a great, great site um, to visit. And uh, I I love taking people there. I I love going up to Dan Mm. as well. Tell me a little bit about Dan, why you like it. Dan is, sometimes um, people think of of Israel sometimes as just being, it's all sand and, you know, there's really nothing there. But when you get up into the northern part of Israel, it is, it's lush. Mm. The, the rainfall is tremendous up there. Um, the snow melt from Mount Hermon comes down. So uh, this is the Bashan? Yeah, B- Bashan would be uh, Golan Heights. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, and that's that's up there north. Yeah. Golan Heights is kind of the northeast uh, section of, of Israel. Um, and Dan is just a little bit west of, okay. of that area um but the the headwaters of the Jordan start up there yeah it's it's very lush and um the the tribe of Dan you know after which it's named uh basically took over that place it was formerly known as uh Laish Le- mm-hmm. up up in that area and it's 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 really well preserved uh the walls of the city are are there they're intact um as you uh as you walk up to To the city, um, around the the if you go around the back of the site, there's um, there's a Canaanite gate complex mm. from most archaeologists would date it 18th century BC, um, and it is it's well preserved. They they've basically put a a cover over the the gate complex to to try to preserve it, but um, that would have been the area where Abraham would have walked into to rescue Lot yeah. after he was uh, captured in that battle that is described in Genesis. Uh, but it's it's on top of a an an earlier older gate complex that uh, that exists. So that that's really really cool.
1: What a trip to think through! You're basically walking through a gate that Abraham would have gone through.
2: Yeah, what a trip! Yeah, now they have it. Uh, you you cannot get up to the gate itself. Right. They they have it gated off, uh, but it's close enough to where it's it, it's just awesome. Yeah. Uh, and and one thing too is with with Dan, that's that's there were two areas that Jeroboam set up set up the golden calf. Mm. One was in Bethel, and yeah, another was with Dan. And and that was all strategic on his part too. Um, Bethel makes sense because it was it was bordering uh, Judah, mm-hmm. um, and Jeroboam wanted to keep the population up there in, in Israel, the Northern Kingdom. But it's interesting that he set one up at Dan because it is one of the furthest points of of Israel on, in yeah. the north. But what what it conveys is that. In its lushness, mm. uh, it conveys that God is blessing this area. Mm. So, to me, I think there was a theological mm. purpose yeah. with Jeroboam that when the people went to worship there, they could see that, oh, this God is blessing this area. Mm. It, the water's plentiful. The growth is plentiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, when When we do devotions up there, um, we we try to highlight the fact that sometimes that can be deceptive.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, the The look of things, yeah, how something's presented, mm-hmm. um, you have to be careful mm-hmm. because even though it appears that there is the favor of God on this place, it might not always be the case.
1: Kind of makes me think about a place where the Rockets used to play, down the road <laughs> from us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, opulence, right? God must be blessing this. Mm-hmm. Look at this massive, massive complex, and yeah, no, that's it's a great point. Yeah, man. it's
2: just not always the case. You know, yeah. God, God defines how He wants to be worshipped. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter what you see around you. Yeah. Um, you can't get caught up in that and one of the ways God defined being worshiped was not through mm-hmm. a golden calf you yeah know? so anyway but yeah Dan I love and then um, I, I I absolutely love taking people around the old city yeah everything that's there um, that that's a, a real highlight especially from the uh, the overlook from the Mount of Olives the Mount of Olives is a few hundred feet. Higher in elevation, so you're kind of looking down mm-hmm. on the old city. Yeah, and um, that's such a sight. It, it is. Oh, it's it's overwhelming. Yeah, and so what? What I like to do also is try to describe, you know, describe the areas that are there presently. Mm-hmm. You know, Dome of the Rock, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, um, Al Aqsa Mosque, all the uh, landmarks to around the city, City of David down on yeah. the south side. But then, um, if, if possible, that same day, I like to take people out to the Israel Museum because they have a model of the uh, first century um, city of Jerusalem. Yeah, And and you can walk, it's huge, it's massive. And you can literally walk around it. And they, they built this thing. They continue to update it. The, the more that they find mm-hmm. Um, so there are archaeologists involved in in directing how that model looks, mm-hmm. and so after having been at the Mount of Olives and seeing and seeing the the present day old city, yeah. taking them over to this model, it's it really starts to bring things together for them at that point. Yeah. Oh, okay, wow, this was here then, mm-hmm. and this was here then, and so on and so forth. So it it um, it helps. People kind of get an idea of, yeah. of what the uh, first century city would have looked like where, where Jesus was.
1: Yeah. Wow. So we brought up this word earlier, Anamosticon, <laughs> not Anasmasticon, but uh, <laughs> Anaco- mast. <Anaconda-most. laughs> yeah. So, what is this? Anamosticon, and why should Christians get
2: familiar with it? Okay, yeah, Yeah, is, um, it, it basically is, is uh, short for um, it, a Greek phrase that means uh, place names of the holy scriptures. And this is basically a, a lexicon that Eusebius put together in the early 4th century, um, and he he thought it was important to um, to identify the sites from scripture mm-hmm. um, and it's interesting he didn't he didn't pay too much attention to the New Testament as mostly he drew mostly from Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament, yeah, uh, to identify these sites and the, he probably put this together um, in the in the early part of the 4th century. He he became uh, the bishop of Caesarea in 313, mm-hmm. in AD 313. And he probably f- uh, either had started or started at that point um, and compiled this most likely before the Council of Nicaea in 325, mm-hmm. AD 325. Yeah. There's no mention of... The discovery of uh, Golgotha, um, and what uh, what happened under Constantine. Yeah, when his mother went over there and uh, you know supposedly discovered the True Cross and yeah. these sites. Um,
1: it's, that's a that's a funny story as well. Yeah, happened, there, but
2: we don't have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no mention of any of that. Yeah, um, he does mention I think the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, a few new testament sites but it's mostly he mostly pulled from the old testament. He does some like Bethsaida he talks about. Yeah. which is cool. He talks about Beth
1: Arb- Beth Arbra yeah. where John was baptizing. Yeah. you know. So, but yeah, yeah, like you're saying it's mostly old testament stuff.
2: Yeah. And and he um you can tell from the way onomasticon was written, he probably like visited these places. Yeah. Cuz Caesarea of course is on on the west side of uh, of Israel, yeah, um, on the coast of, right. of the Mediterranean, and so it's uh, it's probably you know seventy seventy five miles uh, northwest of Jerusalem, yeah, um, maybe fifty little under fifty miles to the Sea of Galilee, yeah, um, but what he did. In um, in describing the location of these sites, is that he he measured the Roman milestones mm. as he walked to and from these sites. Yeah, um, some that he couldn't identify. Um, he he wrote about just taking from from scripture. Yeah, uh, this site is mentioned in this passage. Mm-hmm. Um, this site is mentioned from that passage, but you can also tell in his descriptions that. He most likely visited these sites himself, yeah, and and wrote about them. Um, so yeah, Anamaskhan—it's it's it's really important, and he put it together not so much to um, to precipitate what happened under Constantine when when all these churches started being built mm-hmm. over these sites, but but he he wrote it as as an exegetical commentary. Mm-hmm. He wrote it from more of a um, uh, a perspective of uh, studying the scriptures mm-hmm. uh, to 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 build up the um, the truth uh, yeah. uh, of what happened uh, in the, that uh, that's recorded in, in in the Bible. Yeah, and so it was more scholarly mm-hmm. in his mind. I mean, he put together it's it's geographical in one sense. But then, on the other hand, it's it's a lexicon, mm-hmm. and so it's kind of a dictionary of it, it lists sites. It was written in, in Greek, mm-hmm. and um, and that's the way it was uh, kind of arranged. Mm-hmm. Um, not a- after him, Jerome came along and translated it into Latin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but it it's it only. Pretty much recently was translated into English, mm. not not long ago. For a while, it was it was just Dutch and Hebrew mm. that it was translated into. Um, English uh, w- was more of a late comer mm-hmm. So it's it's really a, a, an incredible resource uh, to have um, and be being available in in English right now. Mm-hmm. And and these sites uh, can be can be verified.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, some there, there are some points where Eusebius is is a little bit off with some stuff, mm-hmm. uh, but this this is used still even today mm-hmm. by, by archaeologists uh, to determine you know places mm. sites uh, from from the the biblical narrative, you know, yeah, and it's 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 not so much just scientific. Um, I, I think my 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 take is that when when we when Eusebius writes about these sites, he lists these sites. When when we're over there touring, I, I think it's God's desire to think about these sites theologically. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Shiloh is is one of those sites in particular uh, because that's where the the ark rested for centuries, mm-hmm. a few centuries, um, and we see what happened with the Philistines. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, Shiloh.
1: This is in First Samuel. We're thinking about.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's first um, noted in Joshua, mm-hmm. and then in Judges, and it's it's really interesting because I just want to read. From a judge's passage that, um, that has, I think, a lot to do with Eusebius' thinking behind putting together Anamosticon. Mm. And in, in Judges 21, uh, chapter 19, listen to the specifics on um, the geography of this place. And of course, this is. There's a lot of context and background to um, to this passage. This is when Israel goes to war with Benjamin because of what happened with the concubine, um, and um, there were very few men left in Benjamin, and the the, the Israel was mourning because they're thinking. We, Okay, there's a tribe that's going to be lost now, and how are we going to uh, recover from yeah. from what we've done? How is Benjamin going to recover? Of course, um, there were wives uh, provided from one of the cities, the towns. From I think it was Manasseh had a had a the tribe of Manasseh on the east side of the Jordan had a town where the people didn't show up to do battle. Right, um, and so they. You know, they attacked them and took virgins from there, but there were still men left without wives. Mm-hmm. So, they, uh, they basically instructed uh, the Benjamites who, who didn't have wives to go to Shiloh. Mm. And it's interesting how Judges reads um, because it says, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh. And it, it, the, the text doesn't stop there. But listen to how it, it's described, which is north of Bethel on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. Hmm. And so there is a specific geographical description of where this city could be found. Hmm. And if you follow that route, um, there, there's a, there was a, um, a route that ran up The Central Mountain Range, from um, from Bethel to Shechem, and just off of that route um, is Shiloh. And so the Bible basically describes where Shiloh is is located. And when you go to um, Anamastikon, it's listed in in the Greek. Name instead of the the Hebrew Shil- right. Shiloh, um, it's listed as uh, Salo. Mm-hmm. E- Eusebius actually counts the Roman milestones uh, from his ba- from his walk from um, from where he was to to Shiloh, mm-hmm. and so we have that confirmation. And when you go to the site, you you can see exactly where they would have had the tabernacle, everything where it would have been set. I mean, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. Um, but the, in the theological, in a theological respect, um, Shiloh is brought up again in Psalm 78, yeah. which records a lot of Israel's history, and it's brought up again in uh, Jeremiah 7.14. And this is right before um, God brings judgment on Jerusalem, Via the Babylonians, say saying, "Look what I did to Shiloh. That is going to happen to you because of your sin, um, and because you can't treat me as common. Mm. Um, so there are theological lessons mm. that that geography and archaeology of the Holy Land bring to light for us, mm. and and to be able to like be at those sites and and think about." how God wants us to see these things theologically. You know, God wasn't someone who put his plan in action and then backed off. He was someone uh, whose plan uh, worked out in time and space mm. and he was involved. And it, it's, a, it's a thing of um, actually seeing the material traces of an invisible God's work in the world and it, it's truly something that is such a faith builder when when you see these things and and you you can know for sure that yes this is the site where these things happened it it is um it's it's just a it's something that you you just can't experience or have for your faith unless you're there yeah you know
1: there was a there's a guy I've talked to before, uh, Judd Burton, that um, he does archaeology stuff. But he says like context is theology.
2: Yes, I heard that podcast, and yeah. I remember him saying that.
1: Yeah, and it seems
2: like the Onomasticon really helps that. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, when when we get to Jerome, when he translates into Latin, yeah, this is the the spirit in which. He writes, and this is what he says uh, about uh, what he's doing in translating Onomasticon into Latin. In the same way that they who have seen Athens understood the Greek histories better, and they who have sailed from Troy through Lucetta and from acro to Sicily, and from there to the mouth of the Tiber understand the third book of Virgil, so he who has contemplated Judea with his own eyes and knows the sites of ancient cities and knows the names of the places, whether the same or changed, will regard Scripture more lucidly. Mm. I just love that quote from Jerome. And he's yeah. so right yeah. to be there and, and to know that um, God worked in these areas. Yeah. They're preserved And 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 it's a testimony to um, to the truth of Scripture, Mm. to the truth of of what He's doing in His world.
1: So, like one one thing that I really like about the Onomasticon, in terms of like context and theology, is from John five. Like I think you and I both date John late, Mm -hmm. being like in the nineties, maybe early nineties AD, and some some scholars date it early because of, uh, like, before the destruction of Jerusalem, right? because of John 5. And they say that John, I'll just read a little bit uh, from John 5, 2. Now, in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there's a pool called, in Hebrew, Bethsaida, which has five porticos. And so, John's putting that in the present tense there. Mm-hmm. There is this pool here. Instead of there was a pool, there is a pool. Mm-hmm. So, they're saying... John has to be writing this before the destruction of t- the temple. Otherwise, he would have said there was a pool. Sure. In the Automasticon, Eusebius talks about this same pool. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I'll, I'll just read it. He says, There's a pool in Jerusalem which is called, uh, uh, I can't even pronounce that, but <laughs> interpreted by a sheep. All right. Uh-huh. So the, the sheep pool. Once it had five porticos, there are now pointed out twin pools of which one is filled by the rainwater, winter rains, and the other. It appears that the water becomes miraculously red, as they say, bearing the traces of the sacrificial victims formerly washed in it. So it is called the sheep after the sacrifice. So he's like talking about this pool and he's saying, oh, it's there. It's there. It used to have five Well, Mm -hmm. now there are two, Mm -hmm. but it's there. He's talking about it in the present tense, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting. And so, like, Eusebius clearly didn't live before the destruction of the temple. right? He's living several hundred years later, but he's talking about it in a very similar way that John could have been talking about it here in chapter 5 of his gospel. And to me, I mean, having a late date with John – really matters in a lot of areas Mm -hmm. it it puts a a different understanding of uh when you understand what's going on around 90 with the jews and and uh, or we could say the jews who believe in the messiah and those that don't and the tension there it just puts a a different understanding of of the text Mm when we put it in 90 that's i think very important that's a good point you know so just a little thing but uh absolutely yeah so getting to our last question and don't feel like you have to like shorten this or whatever, but even though it's our last one, we were talking about this earlier. You're like, all right, so well, like, what's the, what's the big idea? Why are, why are we doing this? You know, and I'm talking about like, there's this Christian deconstruction movement. These people that uh, many leaders in the faith who used to be for Christ that are now tearing everything down and trying to build from the beginning. And generally not really building upon the essentials of the faith, just tearing everything down. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 this, like, fad almost. Um, like Joshua Harris, the guy who wrote uh, Boy Meets Girl and I Kissed Dating Goodbye, like, he'll do conferences. He'll do, like, lectures on how to properly deconstruct your faith. Like, it's to me, that's so sad. Yeah. Unbelievably sad. So, um, I don't think uh, archaeology proves the truth of Scripture, necessarily. Right. uh, Other than like these locations were there. But man, it can strengthen our faith. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, like, what are some of the more modern archaeological discoveries you know about that can help strengthen and encourage
2: our faith? sure um, <clears throat> excuse me as of well covid really shut things down yeah for the last couple of years but um, archaeology is is now starting to pick up the pace again over yeah. there and the the latest some of the latest discoveries that have occurred um, are, are really interesting there is is um, there was a dig going on in Jerusalem, and then also at a site uh, kind of in the um, uh, Jezreel Valley. And what what they discovered is evidence for the earthquake Mm -hmm. that is described by Isaiah during the reign of Uzziah. I think Amos also refers to it. It must have been a huge, huge event. Uh, because you have actually three prophets who refer to it in the eighth century B.C., mm. and uh, Zechariah actually uh, refers to it uh, way, way later, yeah, after the fact. Uh, so this must have been a a pretty cataclysmic event. Mm. But but they've now reached a level in their excavation in Jerusalem at the city of David, in the city of David, actually. And they found evidence of, uh, of that earthquake in, in that level of stratum. Mm. And it agrees with the uh, the site in the Jezreel Valley that they're excavating as well, where they discovered the, the same evidence of that, that same earthquake yeah. in 8th in eight, century BC during the reign of uh, King Uzziah. Mm. Uh, that, um, that really has a confirming
0: yeah
2: um sense to mm-hmm. to scripture yeah there um another recent discovery was um a another wall in the old city, actually the city of david on the on the east side um on the Kidron valley side of the city of David that they date to the time of of Hezekiah mm uh, and speaking of Hezekiah, um, Hezekiah's tunnels there. Yeah, um, that that's that's referred to in uh, both Kings and Chronicles. You can walk. We've walked it. Like that is the tunnel. And there was there was an inscription that was um, that was written by by both both sides of. Uh, of the tunnel, they, they were digging from two separate ends. And these are this is like almost two thousand feet
1: apart. Correct. And like over a hundred feet down. Correct.
2: Just wild, wild stuff that they're how attempting. they met. Yeah, how they ended up meeting. Yeah. And finishing that tunnel is it's just unbelievable. Yeah. And and what's even and I'm kind of like getting off track here no, a little bit. Good. But what's even more amazing about that tunnel is that from the from the side of the Gihon spring that that su- supplied the water the the, um, the reason they did that is because they they wanted to they didn't want the Assyrians to come in and cut off their supply of water. And the Gihon spring was outside of the city walls at that time. Yeah. And even though it was uh, there were um, superstructures built around it to protect it um, it was still uh, assailable. Yeah, um, and they know they're going to be under siege. Right. Yeah. So they had to find a way to bring the water into the city. Yeah. And and that's why Hezekiah dug the tunnel. But what what's amazing is that um, there is a um, a point zero six gradient that that runs from the source at the Gihon spring. To the site inside the city walls, and so the, the the flow of the water had a natural decline in it, mm-hmm. and that gradient was was just perfect. Yeah. In in that uh, that length of tunnel, and then the fact that there were two teams of diggers digging from separate ends, they still managed to have the pitch of the tunnel so that the water would would naturally flow into yeah. the city. It's it's just incredible. Yeah. Um, but, uh, going back to the, the question, so there, there's another portion of wall that was discovered that's attributed to Hezekiah, of course, they, they found a section they call the broad wall that's in the, in the Jewish quarter um, that, that was uh, referred to in, um, in Scripture as uh, Hezekiah having to basically demolish homes to build this wall to secure the city from the Assyrians. So. Um, that that was a, another recent discovery. There's also an inscription
1: right inside the tunnel, like yes. 20 feet inside the tunnel, talking about he- Hezekiah yeah. digging this thing. Right. Yeah. But that was
2: discovered at, like in the 1800s, late, late 1800s. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. It's it's actually in a museum in Istanbul. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Um, and there's a copy of it in the Israel Museum. Yeah. But they they basically. Um, yeah wrote these when they they finally met they inscribed this uh, stone at the point where they broke through to one another and it's, it's amazing to, to read it and to to basically hear them yeah in a sense describe how it how it happened so yeah it's uh, it's pretty amazing but um, another really interesting find recently was uh, a name on a pottery shard. It, it was. I think it was actually on a uh, a jug mm. in uh, in an area southwest of Jerusalem, kind of by Lachish yeah. in that area. But the name it, it's it's in a Canaanite script, and the name is uh, Jerubbaal. So this is Gideon. This is Gideon. Yeah. Right. So, it was the name that, that they gave Gideon. Um, and, and I think it translates to who will contend with Baal. Yeah. Uh, th- there are uh, scholars who, who, who believe, and, and they've dated it to the time of the judges as well. Wow. And so, there's a, there, a real possibility that that, that is um, the name of, of Gideon. I'm not going to say the yeah. <laughs> try to say the other name again, but um, so that that's been a recent discovery, and um, one other one that that was really interesting is they they found an amethyst stone hmm. recently in back in back in the first century there was a a um, a street that ran from the pool of Siloam, which is on the very South end of the city of David, uh, that that ran all the way up to the Temple Mount, mm-hmm. and it uh, it was used for a, a procession during the Feast of Tabernacles, where the high priest would come down and and fill up a pitcher of uh, p- pitchers of water to pour around the altars um, at at the on the Temple Mount. Uh, but it was a huge procession that happened. In fact, John chapter seven records uh, Jesus being at, at in Jerusalem at the last day of the festival, talking yeah. about the feast of uh, Tabernacles. Yeah. Um, um. And so they've uh, there's actually um, a drainage tunnel that that runs along that street as well that you can walk. From um, from the Pool of Siloam, you walk through this drainage tunnel and uh, and exit um, on on top in, in an area on, on top of the city of David. But um, the 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 street itself is not open to where you can uh, can walk and then emerge at the um, at the southwest corner of the the Temple Mount. But what they found uh, on that street. Is an amethyst stone that uh, th- there is a design. Um, it's it's a it's a plant, and they they've determined that it was th- it's it's the balm of Gilead, <laughs> and it's it's what? a beautiful little stone, and and so it, the Bible talks about the the balm of Gilead, yeah, and um, and and that's what the the um. The scientists have have determined that they they don't they haven't seen this particular plant. You know, you'll get um, pomegranates yeah. and palms and so on and so forth. But the further they investigated, they've determined that that what's uh, what's etched in the stone is you know the balm of Gilead, <laughs> and so that's that's another recent discovery over yeah. there in in Israel. Um, but things that have been found over the, since, uh, since they really started uh, excavating over there yeah. have been incredible. The, the, the pilot inscription that they found at Caesarea, um, they, it was actually on a, one of the seats in the theater. They were, they were using it as a, either a seat or a step. I, I, I can't remember which, which one, but um, when they were excavating the site at Caesarea, uh, someone just happened to turn this thing over and there was the inscription uh, pilot prefect of Judea yeah um, so there, there's there's a lot of stuff like that that the Tel Dan Stila, which um, uh, they found up in Dan um, notes uh, basically uh, says uh, the house of David yeah um, by it by David and until that point, in the early nineties, ninety-two, ninety-three, they they discovered this. There were there was no evidence outside of the Bible that that people were starting to think David didn't even exist, really. Mm. Uh, but then they came across this um, part. It's part of a stele, and you can clearly see on the inscription, you know, House of David. Yeah. Um, so th- there's just so many things that uh, have been discovered over there, and it. It's just it's all relatively recent, you know. Mm. The, the hard sciences uh, didn't really get get into um, Palestine until the late nineteenth century. Yeah, it, it's a fascinating history. Yeah, of of how it began because under the Ottoman Empire, a lot of it was closed. Right. So you have people that there were archaeologists who basically studied like bedouin culture Mm. arab culture and they learned arabic and and they basically um um just uh what's the word i'm looking for
1: well it's like they're they're infiltrating it
2: yes yeah and a lot of it was undercover yeah um but they started excavating doing doing archaeological work the hard sciences in the late, only in the late 1900s. Yeah. So it's been, it's relatively, relatively recently. Yeah. And then, of course, um, more, the modern state of Israel, a lot of that was, you know, off limits. Yeah. It wasn't until after the Six Day War that a lot of the, 1967, that a lot of that. Right. Really started um, getting, getting going, yeah. you know. So there's still much to be discovered, I think. Mm. You know.
1: So like this, is, all analogies, you know, fail at a certain point, but it makes me think about in our culture, <laughs> uh, when someone's getting arrested and, uh, <laughs> you know, they're presented with the Miranda rights, you know, anything you can say will be used against you. So it's best for you to remain silent. You have the right to remain silent. You know, some people, when they are telling lies have a tendency to give more and more and more detail. And so it's like it's better for you <laughs> to not say anything. Keep it really really basic. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible gives an incredible amount of what some people might think of as unnecessary detail. Hmm. Mhm. But these unnecessary, what we what some people might think of as unnecessary details, archaeology confirms yes. These little things Right. It's like if you're trying to like create this whole lie, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't give all of these details. Keep it really basic, you know? True. Because if you do give a bunch of details and those things don't exist, it's going to be proven like very clearly you're just making stuff up. Right. You know? So that's one thing for me that these archaeological discoveries are so so encouraging in in my faith, mm-hmm. you know, God took the time to have these people like do these little details, and they may not even like thought anything of it, you know. I'm just maybe because they're more meticulous, you know, and mm-hmm. they're thinking and they're in their writing or whatever. Um, but God's like, no, I'm going to have that come back up uh, a couple thousand years later. That's going to be really important for folks.
2: Yeah, I I believe that's the case, yeah. and I, I think with the uh, the minimalist view in in archaeology when it comes to biblical archaeology um i I just be patient Mm. just wait yeah (laughs) because it it seems like there's always something that that gets uncovered uh that further validates Mm. the scriptures not that it proves like to your point earlier
1: like archaeology doesn't prove the resurrection right you know right but it can give a lot of credibility absolutely to those who are telling us the story of the resurrection
2: yeah um it is is the bible strictly theology right or or is it history Mm. um i think with the minimalist view that that tends to assign it to to just theology, right? Um, but in a in a maximalist view, um, the the thought is, hey, there there is history here, yeah, and and archaeology can can validate that mm. in a lot of ways. I mean, the city of Jerusalem itself, yeah, right. And the fact that it exists, that it's yeah. there, right. Um, just to start in a you know just the most basic sense, mm. the city of Jerusalem is the city of Jerusalem. It has been the city of Jerusalem and will continue to be the city of Jerusalem. And mm. it's again it's mentioned about eight hundred times in in scripture. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's 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 something that that to be over there to. It helps you understand also, like why Jesus taught the way he did. Mm. When when he says things like, um, "If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be oh, better for a millstone to be tied around his neck and cast into the sea." You go to Capernaum, and they've excavated millstones. Yeah, and you think about. Wow! If that thing was tied around my neck, and and I got thrown into the sea, you know I'm sleeping with the fishes. Yeah, (laughs) it's like there's I'm done. Yeah. So it's interesting. Like it just comes alive. Yeah. We we read our Bibles outside of that context, and it's two dimensional. Mm. And our imaginations can do a lot with it. Yeah. But being over there, all of a sudden, it becomes three dimensional. And you start to realize why Jesus taught the way he did. Mm. He was pulling things in from the environment, mm-hmm. from geography. Um, the, the Peter's great confession in Caesarea Philippi. Mm. I mean, the church has divided mm. on what Jesus meant by um, y- "and you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church." Yeah. Okay. So, is it Peter himself? Is it the confession? Right. Um, I think until you're at that site and you look around right. and you start to think about what Jesus said on this rock, I will yeah. man, it it really can can uh, you know mess with your theology, <laughs> right? Yeah, so I I argue that that there's more context yeah that that Jesus brought into that when he told Peter, you yeah. know, you are Peter and on this rock. yeah. If you're at the site, you start to go, oh <laughs> huh. I wonder if Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, that, that's another big thing. The the Bible comes alive and you, you you never never ever read it the same way again.
0: I kept my head low and I walked that narrow road. It's mighty
1: men- both house and home. But I won't forget that day you made yourself known.
0: You said the end has come for men, but hang tight to me with your family. It's just